This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Nurses are getting sick with COVID-19 and the BCNU president, Christine Sorensen, joins me to discuss why. Sarah Thorne of Decision Partners joins me tonight to reveal the results of the Coping 19 survey on how you feel about opening up. Dr. John Beisler gives a thorough review of hypertension and why it's important to get that under control in time of COVID-19. And Dr. Gurdeep Parhar answers all of your pandemic questions from jewelry to vaccine to masks. Then the power of positivity with my Irish friend, John Doran. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Right now, I want to talk about the fact that our healthcare workers, nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists are contracting COVID-19, in particular nurses. And joining me on the line is the president of the British Columbia Nurses Union, Christine Sorensen. Good evening, Christine. Good evening, Maureen. Thanks so much for joining me. I, I want to talk about at least 472 healthcare workers in Alberta uh, have contracted COVID-19, 22 doctors, many, many nurses, uh, most of them in the Calgary area. And on Saturday in British Columbia, a COVID-19 outbreak has been declared at Abbotsford Regional Hospital in British Columbia. It's not the first outbreak of nurses in British Columbia. We've had others at uh, local community hospital, Lionsgate Hospital in North Vancouver, um, this is concerning. Uh, although there's an investigation happening through the Fraser Health Authority, this is a concern for uh, nurses, and, and I know that you're concerned about it. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yes, uh, your statistics are very close to home and very real, even in this province. Uh, we heard from Dr. Henry about a week ago uh, that close to 21% of the positive cases in this province uh, for covid uh, have come from healthcare workers. Now, we don't know exactly how many of those that are nurses, um, but this is similar to what we're seeing in Ontario, which is a much larger out, uh, scale of an outbreak, where 18% of their uh, positive cases are coming in healthcare workers. Uh, and we are seeing them in all sectors, whether it's long-term care or, as you suggested, in other, commun- uh, other um, acute care centres like Lionsgate Hospital or Ridge, Med- Ridge Meadows Hospital. And so why is it that, I mean, I would venture to guess that most of the cases are nurses because it's the largest population of healthcare providers, caregivers, um, personal service workers, and registered nurses, LPNs as well. Um, they, just the sheer numbers of those are, are greater. Uh, so why do you think we're having these outbreaks? And, and sadly enough, I had heard of a situation where management was actually blaming the nurses for contracting COVID-19. And I also heard that management was blaming physicians in another uh, province as well. So uh, is this about blaming the nurses? Yeah, and I think that's really unfortunate. I think it, this isn't the time when we should be blaming anybody. I think it's the time when we should all be working together on trying to figure out how to protect our healthcare workers, keep them safe so that they can safely practice and that they can make sure that they can provide safe patient care. When we look at what we um, are important for us in healthcare, uh, the first one, which we've asked the public to do, is physically distance. Uh, that's very difficult in healthcare. We have close contact with our patients. We're in close proximity to each other as caregivers. Uh, and we don't have those kinds of environments where we can physically distance from each other. Uh, then the next level are engineering controls and administrative controls. And that includes structuring our buildings so that we have single-use rooms. 
that people can um, put their clothes on and take off in separate rooms or don and doff personal protective equipment in separate rooms, uh, that people can safely um, come into work and put on their equipment in a place that has been cleaned and is um, uh, extra cleaned, as we call clean those high-touch areas. Um, so those are difficult. Uh, and then what we do is we rely on the last line of defense, which is personal protective equipment. Uh, and we do know that personal protective equipment is prioritized for our high high um, units that are, are what we call hot units or units where we'll see COVID positive patients like our high acuity units in our ICUs, uh, like we have out in Abbotsford. Uh, the problem is, is that we do know that across this province, there is a critical shortage of personal protective equipment. Uh, and even in our acute care centers, uh, we do know that there are nurses uh, that have limited access to the most critical piece, the N95 mask, but also uh, having to reuse visors, goggles, or share them between each other, or have limited numbers of access to other pieces of personal protective equipment. Uh, so we do need to look at all of the ways that we can protect the healthcare staff. Um, and if any of those have have flaws to them, or if there's any problems, or we f- fail to put one of them in, uh, we place our healthcare staff at risk, and unfortunately, the patients can also be placed at risk. And also the families of nurses, because nurses are typically going home to their families, uh, often children or maybe elderly parents as well, and so they're placing uh, their families, and even if they're doubling their bubble, um, a friend at risk. Well, nurses have always worked with infectious disease, and we've been very, very careful uh, to make sure that we don't transmit anything that we're exposed to in the workplace and acute care or long-term care in the community back out into the community and to our families. Uh, But we do need the ability to have change rooms that are clean and safe to use, showers that we can use, uh, clean clothes that we can change into. uh, So it would be helpful if we had scrubs at the hospitals where we can change into and go back into our own street clothes. Uh, And then many nurses are going home and they're either self-isolating or they're showering and and cleaning again to make sure. Um, and, and, And many and some have made the choice to actually isolate outside of their family home in other places, such as um, some of the accommodations that have been provided in the community. That's exactly right. I know early on in this, uh, in the COVID-19, there was a shortage of PPE. I experienced it myself. Um, would you say that uh, now, uh, and the other thing that was just shocking, I, I'm a bit of an infection control freak, uh, being a nurse, <laughs> um, and never in my career have I been ever, and in fact, had I ever u- reused a mask, I would have been disciplined for that. Uh, So we were asking nurses to reuse masks, you know, wear the same one all day. Somebody I encountered was using an N95 mask for three weeks. Uh, Do nurses have personal protective equipment now? And that includes the caps and the eye shields, the goggles, the masks, the gowns, the booties, the gloves. I mean, we get dressed up for this. Absolutely. I think what you're talking about is that there's a variety of pieces of personal protective equipment and it should be up to the nurse who's doing a point of care risk assessment to determine what is the appropriate level of PPE that they need to wear to keep themselves safe. Unfortunately, what I hear across this province is that nurses are having great difficulty accessing the personal protective equipment they need. 
we do know that there is a critical shortage around the world uh, and we have been asked to conserve and nurses are doing their best to conserve. Uh, but we have never been uh, trained to take disposable products and reuse them. And unfortunately, that's what many nurses are telling me that they are having to do ar- around the province. They are having to take off their surgical mask, place it on a piece of paper towel when they take their break, come back and reapply it. We know that applying a mask that potentially has been infected um, is the highest risk time. Touching that mask again is very difficult. Uh, We've unfortunately seen a lot of personal protective equipment that's now um, either locked up uh, and so nurses don't have unfettered access and that delays patient care. Uh, And I've heard a variety of situations where nurses have actually gone out and they've had to uh, source their own personal protective equipment, which includes includes respirators or goggles or face shields. Uh, and we're seeing the public step forward to help the nurses because they hear about this. This is These are their families and friends, uh, and they want to help. And unfortunately, most of those products can't be used in healthcare because they don't meet medical grade. Exactly. And I just want to make the point that this is a highly contagious uh, infection. And when we are asked to reuse personal protective equipment, uh, we can become uh, infected, asymptomatic, pass it on to other people unwittingly. Christine, thank you so much. I would love to have you back. And uh, as we follow this uh, infection uh, in the days to come, in the months to come. Thank you. Happy to be here and happy to share, chat with you anytime. She's recognized globally for her expertise in behavioral research, which is critical in this pandemic. She's also involved in organizational decision-making, in strategy, policy, communication. She works with organizations in public health, emergency preparedness, energy, infrastructure, and organizational transformation, stakeholder engagement, climate change, sustainability, and resilience. She is Sarah Thorne, and she is the president and CEO at Decision Partners. Good evening, Sarah. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. So every week, Decision Partners uh, administers a COVID-19 coping strategy, and you're asking the public what they are concerned about, what they're grateful for, their coping mechanisms, their protective behaviors. What are some of the critical uh, things that people are reporting? Well, we started this survey eight weeks ago, and we've been asking people every week, how they're coping, what they're concerned about, um, and and what they're doing to make things a little bit better in their lives. So what we've heard over the last eight weeks is quite a transition. Um, when we first started, people told when we asked them how they were coping, people were very anxious. They were very concerned. They were very uncertain. And pretty much everybody that's been doing our survey has been um, sheltering in place. Most of the people that are... Um, on the front line have, we've got a few, but most of them aren't doing our survey. Mostly it's people that have been self-isolating. So over the course of the eight weeks, we've seen people go from very anxious to concerned to tired. Um, a couple, two weeks ago, we heard that people said, actually, they were doing okay. And then last week, they were back to being tired and a little concerned about things opening up. Very interesting. Did you have any reports that people were um, be, were, were in, actually enjoying the pandemic because life had you know come to a bit of a halt? We were living in a you know a crazy 
instant gratification, do everything, be everything to everybody kind of world. And so where people have been kind of sent home and told to relax a bit and maybe enjoy nature, has there been any positive responses like that? There's been quite a bit. Um, There are a number of people that are um, reporting that they're really taking the time to reflect on what's important to them. A lot of people are doing things that they have put off doing. Some people are doing some very creative things. Um, uh, One of the people that's doing our survey, for instance, is uh, a senior who's shut in, and um, she's writing all of the names of her family members in Hindi for them. Oh, (laughs) So, <laughs> in so, all different colors. So lovely. So, you know, pe- people are doing um, different things. I think that's going to be very interesting as we go back to some form of new normal, which I think is going to be a continuum. I don't think it's going to be like a light switch on and off. Um, I think there are a number of things that people have done while they've been self-isolating that they may not want to give up. Right. Uh, things like, you know, getting in touch with old friends on a weekly basis, Um, reaching out to family members that they don't usually talk to, you know, on a frequent basis, doing those sorts of things. Forgiving people, perhaps, who have wronged them. (laughs) That might be one thing people are considering, getting over old resentments. But the, the government leaders and the policymakers are loosening the restrictions. Some people are for that, but some are fearful, you mentioned. I think a number of people, certainly the people taking our survey, are very cautious. Um, Their number one priority is safety. They want to make sure that what they're doing is safe and that they're protecting their health and the health of the people around them. So when we asked them um, in the last week how they felt about participating in a number of the activities that are opening up, most people were not very comfortable with most of the activities. And what were some of those activities? Well, using public transportation, for example, people are not really comfortable doing that. Traveling, um, traveling by air, um, not comfortable doing that. Um, not comfortable going to the gym. Um, most people are not comfortable with even going to a restaurant. And when we said, well, what about if you went to a restaurant and sat outside, um, you know, with appropriate social distancing, still a lot of people were saying, mm, don't know that I'm comfortable doing that yet. More comfortable with takeout still, I, I can imagine. I think so. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, we're hearing from the protesters, those who are wanting society to open back up again, get their businesses going. I, I completely understand that. This has hit a lot of families financially, um, you know, pretty significantly. Are people worried about their finances? Do you ask those questions as well? Um. We ask people what they're worried about, and some people have um, certainly mentioned they're worried about their finances, and they're worried about, you know, where this is going long-term, what the long-term impact is going to be on the economy and on their family. People were very grateful, um, certainly in Canada, with the, with the government programs that have been put in place to help them over, you know, over the short term. Is this an exclusively Canadian survey? No. Um, the survey um, is an opportunistic um, sample. So we basically started by sending it to our friends and families and colleagues, um, clients, and um, it spread far and wide. So it goes 
Um, across Canada, we have several people, several different states, um, people in several different states doing the survey, and some international as well. I'd, I'd like to drill down into some of that data and see the difference between the Republican states and some of the Democrat states <laughs> as it relates to yes, the... there are some. <laughs> yes, I'm sure there are. Um, but it feels like we're hearing more so from the people who are disgruntled with the lockdown versus the people who are concerned about opening up. So will you continue this coping survey as time goes on? Well, we just are sending out an announcement today, tonight, um, we are usually our surveys close Sunday nights at midnight, and we're going to extend this one that's in the field, which is number eight. We're going to extend it until tomorrow night at midnight. Um, so if any of your listeners want to do it, they can go online um, and do it. It's at Decision Partners with an S, decisionpartners.co. Um, and then we're going to take a pause because what we're hearing now is we had uh, we've done eight weeks. We've heard, had basically four or five weeks of most people being in isolation. Then we had people sort of tentatively doing a few things. But now that um, governments and um, local municipalities are opening things up, we're going to take a break and come back in. Uh, the middle of June and see what people actually are doing. That's a great idea. And I would love to check in with you in the middle of June uh, to see uh, how things have changed. I think it'll be really interesting. We're hearing intent right now about what people think they might do. But by the middle of June, we should hear what people are doing. Compassion, dedication, extraordinary care. He's an experienced general cardiologist in private practice, also the head of cardiology at Lionsgate Hospital and the North Shore Heart Center. John Weisler, Dr. John Weisler, joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Weisler. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Great, thanks, and thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you for joining me. I want to get right into uh, COVID-19 and its relationship to heart health and, and start with hypertension because so many people experience hypertension and we're seeing that patients with hypertension uh, stand to become sicker if they do contract COVID-19. And, and also just in general, COVID-19 or not, why it's so important for people to ensure that their blood pressure is, according to the American Cardiology Association, numbers 120 over 80 or less. So a <laughs> bit of a loaded question there. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, uh, the, the majority, the vast majority of people that have unfortunately died of COVID-19 um, did have some other medical illness. And hypertension is so common, and it was the most common um, under, or comorbidity in, in these patients that passed away. I um, don't know the full story, Maureen, as to how it gives you a higher risk. Um, one main thought is that when you have higher blood pressure, your heart has to work harder to pump blood and get the blood to all the other organs that need it. And when you're sick with the coronavirus or with any virus, your, your heart has to work harder. And so it faces greater resistance from the higher blood pressure. Higher blood pressure over time also weakens and damages the kidneys and other organs as well. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of different ways. Those are probably two of the, the, the biggest ones that people believe hypertension plays a role in 
making us more susceptible to COVID. And so I find a lot of patients don't uh, know their blood pressure. If they do know that it's high, they'll pass it off or just say, you know, mine's okay, and but they won't know the number. Um, and they may have some other issues as well, like additional abdominal weight. Um, they might lead a sedentary lifestyle. And But if some patients don't want to go on medication, at least initially, what are some of the things they should try uh, before and, and how long should they wait before they go on medication? Because the medication can have lots of side effects. But what are some of the, you know, uh, what's the low-hanging fruit, if you will? For, um, yeah, so I, I, the, the lifestyle is always step one. And it's always worth remembering that we as doctors want you to do that. You know, the, um, we, we tend to focus a lot on medication. I think as doctors because they're things that we can prescribe and we know how they work and we have a rough idea of how much they may benefit you when you go on the medication but lifestyle is always step one so controlling your weight um, even if you lose like um, a modest amount of weight sort of five to seven pounds that can equal the effect of one blood pressure medication lower your blood pressure somewhere six to ten millimeters of mercury um, minimizing salt in your diet um, to do this well is hard because there's kind of salt in everything that we eat you know there's a diet called the dash diet which is really sodium restricted uh, which is effective at lowering blood pressure and again roughly equals roughly one one medication but if you don't want to go that far even simply avoiding the obvious high fat foods looking at labels a little bit looking at lower salt alternatives can be helpful um, and then stopping um, Smoking, if you smoke, the smoking uh, is a big factor for blood pressure. It sort of constricts the arteries. And finally, trying to be active on a regular basis, uh, a little bit harder in these times of social distancing, but you can still do it, you know, do it with precautions and, and try to stay apart from others you don't know. But regular physical activity, aiming for about two and a half hours of moderate intensity activity uh, per week, such as walking, more is better, more strenuous is better, but that's sort of a good minimum. Um, those are sort of four things you can do to try and improve your blood pressure and maybe not need medications or not need as many. Okay. I have a question here. Somebody has texted into the hotline. Uh, I have heard that once you're on medication for high blood pressure, you can't ever come off those meds. Yeah. So a common myth, not, not always true. I mean, the thing with the medications is that they're you know, by lowering your blood pressure, they're lowering your risk of heart disease and other complications. So if you stop the medication prematurely, uh, your risk will increase. So it's like a risk reduction maneuver. So you can stop it, but your risk may go up. But if you go on medication, um, usually my suggestion is for people that are otherwise healthy, they have high blood pressure, it's confirmed over a series of readings. We don't just look at one reading, but if you look at a few readings, the high blood pressure is confirmed. Um, then after about three to six months of a good triad lifestyle, you maybe start a medication. Then if you're able to make further progress, so say you have trouble losing weight and you're able to find something that works, you get those pounds off or whatever it may be. Um, if you're able to improve your health, your blood pressure may improve. You may be able to stop the medication and not take it anymore. So that's, that's a common myth that I hear with blood pressure and cholesterol pills and certainly not true. Okay, I have another email here. Uh, dear Maureen, love listening to Dr. Weisler. <laughs> Thank you for having him on. Uh, yes, um, and uh, the question she has is, how about stress management? My husband has high blood pressure and an anger management problem. Uh, does that affect his blood pressure? Thank you, Sarah. So for sure it does. I mean, uh, if, if you're... The okay, we all go through stress, and the occasional stressful episode will raise our blood pressure, but then you know, we'll hopefully get back to normal. It doesn't usually have a big impact on our cardiac risk. 
if you're angry all the time or stressed out all the time, you know, that's, that's different. So uh, stress raises your blood pressure through a variety of different means. It, you know, most obviously it increases your adrenaline levels. So your heart works a bit harder. Your arteries squeeze a little bit more. So over time, that raises your blood pressure. Uh, so it's certainly worth controlling that. There's no one perfect way. Anything that's you know healthy, reasonable meditation, exercise, whatever it is, um, you know any any sort of reasonable way is is is, is reasonable and, and effective to try and manage your stress level. It's important to do that. Stress also puts a strain directly on our heart as well, so it can increase the risk of heart disease through other mechanisms as well as through increased blood pressure. And you mentioned the squeezing of the blood vessels. Uh, and so I think of erectile dysfunction, which can often be the canary in the coal mm-hmm. mine for issues. Absolutely. So would you give it thinking about stress and thinking about erectile dysfunction and thinking about the lifestyle as a cardiologist who is, you know, very familiar with cardiac meds, would you be comfortable prescribing meditation for people or some of the other um, more non-traditional um, ways to treat blood pressure? Yeah, I, I would, I would, I would encourage it for sure. Um, I think, um, you know, I mean, I, I have a, a brief practice myself, and and uh, it's, it's a very brief sort of mindfulness thing that I do. But I've, I've witnessed the benefits in a lot of patients. It's a pretty right. It's it's a pretty safe uh, intervention to to learn. I don't want to call it easy because some people find it hard to get started. But whether it's through a app that you download on your cell phone, or if you're able to do a like have a, a teacher, which nowadays is probably through Zoom or through the phone. But uh, but um, I, I would certainly be comfortable recommending it, especially if, you know, pe- so, some people will often volunteer that they're quite stressed and they'll, you know, when they come to see me for their high blood pressure, they'll give me a bit of a snapshot of their life. And I can, you know, certainly, certainly try to empathize with them and appreciate that. So absolutely, it's reasonable to try meditation as, as a form of stress, re- stress reduction. And some of my patients have had big benefits. And what's the number that people should uh, focus on? Like I, the 120 over 80, but what if somebody is 130 over 90, you know, should they be concerned uh, or, or how long you mentioned three to six months of lifestyle changes? Um, and, uh, th- you know, if that, if it doesn't lower from what you like to see, what do you like to see uh, in terms well, of the number? And then does Viagra help? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I generally um, Viagra does lower your blood pressure, but that effect only lasts a few hours. So um, Viagra is good for improving your sexual function, and you know maybe helps you relax through through that mechanism. But it's uh, not a usual treatment for for blood pressure. Um, I, I do like to see the blood pressure right down as as you know at 120 or 80 or in the 120s, as close to that as we can get. Uh-huh. How important that is. Um, sort of depends on the patient, uh, Marine. So um, if you're sort of low risk um, and you're going to keep trying to work on your lifestyle over time, under like 140 over 90 is sort of a bare minimum that we'd like to see. If you have kidney disease, we like it lower. We like it closer right down to 120. Um, if you have diabetes, we like it under 130. So, um, you know, 120 over 80 is sort of an ideal. And then how quickly we want you to get down there, how quickly we add or recommend um, further medications depends on your risk factor. If you have heart disease or if you have other diseases um, and, and sort of in the 120s are good for, for most people. And it's important to remember when you check your blood pressure at home to follow the recommended technique, you sort of take several readings. So three readings over uh, a five to 10 minute interval and try to relax. And I usually tell patients discard the first reading and average the last two because uh, it'll be a truer picture of our, what our blood pressure truly is as we relax. Oh, that's good advice. And should, should somebody lie down for five minutes before they take that initial blood pressure? 
You can, or even even just being seated is okay. okay. Your blood pressure does vary a little bit with your position, and sort of lying is maybe the best way. But, uh, you know, a lot of people find it more convenient to be seated, and that's okay. But be seated with your feet flat on the floor, uh, bladder empty, no coffee within a couple hours, no cigarettes within a couple hours, and then try to rest comfortably for five minutes uh, before going ahead. Coffee, that'll raise your blood pressure too. So if people are drinking three, four, five, 17 cups a day, would you suggest <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> cutting that out? Oh, they're just 17 cups, but they're, you know, wastebasket size. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Try, try to limit it to one or two and don't do your blood pressure right after you drink it. Wait a few hours before exactly. you go ahead. Always great advice. I have the opposite problem. I have uh, my blood pressure is about 95 on 50. <laughs> and so I have a tendency Lucky. to pass out <laughs> uh, yes. far too many times. The But uh, Dr. Weisler, thank you so much. Chock full of information as usual. She's a mindset and high-performance coach for entrepreneurs and executives specializing in subconscious mind reprogramming to treat the invisible blocks that lead to stagnancy and self-sabotage in career. She is Julia Cha, and she joins me on the line. Good evening, Julia. Hello, Maureen. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Now, this quarantine has had negative effects on everybody. People are worried about their finances. They're worried about their their families, their parents. They're worried about their jobs and finances, of course. But women have special challenges. And there are three areas of concern that I believe women need to be watchful for in quarantine. And as they can lead to longer-term issues with mental and emotional health and physical physical. Well-being. In other words, women are dealing with the quarantine and all that goes along with it by abusing alcohol because mm-hmm. social media in part has created this almost glamorized um, alcohol abuse and yeah. also sexual functions concerns uh, women are experiencing as well and uh, also domestic violence, sadly enough. And so a lot of this uh, stems or relates to uh, lack of self-confidence or a lack of a belief in oneself. And you tap into women's minds and lives in order to help them. So tell me some of the strategies that you would advise women who are suffering or having challenging times in this quarantine. Absolutely. So whatever is happening during this type of pandemic and crisis as we will view it is already something that existed that is being amplified right now. So women who are experiencing domestic violence, there was already a lot of problem in that household. And now they're they're feeling trapped in it. And of course, it is a real problem. And also looking at uh, sexual function, that has a lot to do with stress that already exists to say financial stress. So if the quarantine and the COVID is causing these types of stress, we actually want to look at what has been going on already that wasn't being addressed. And you mentioned um, self-confidence. Well, everything that we do is tied to our self-worth. So I would actually, um, even though it's very difficult for women to ask themselves this question, what made you choose this situation? A lot of times we feel like we didn't have control over a lot of things, but if we didn't have the cash cushion, if we didn't have the job security, if we, if our partner is abusive, then what led you to come here? And all of that actually really has to do with familiarity. And when I talk about subconscious rewiring, is getting women to look at what, why did you choose this? Because the mind is always drawn 
to choose what's familiar. When we talk about subconscious mind, it's really about your conditioning. We are all wired to choose something. And so that's where the self-worth is tied. We actually need to go back decades back to see what's led you to make these choices today. Do we choose something or do we accept something? We let people get away with certain things, uh, whether they're treating you poorly or they're taking their stress out on you. And, and, and you either, and you, you know, you may resort to the bottle, um, you know, because this alcohol abuse is certainly a symptom of stress. And so you can yeah. just maybe you know, offer it up, whatever, have another quarantini and there you go. Um, and, and this could be a long-term thing. And so people can start daily drinking or as well, the sexual desire discrepancy because, uh, stress also leads to low libido. It's exhausting, uh, to be on the receiving end of it. Yes. Now your question was, do we choose it or do we accept and let it get away? Actually, those are two of the same thing. We, we want to look at the standard. We have standards. So whatever you're living in right now, your relationships, the kind of home that you have, that has to meet your minimum standard. Otherwise, we will do whatever it takes to have something better. So when we're just accepting something and we're letting our spouse talk to us abusively, for example, let's use that as an example. Somebody with self-worth would not let that happen. Right. I or mean, the children or children can do that, too. To parents. The children can do that too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And a lot of the stress that women are facing right now is that, I mean, let's face it, feminism has gone down the wrong path. This is not like, let's be equal. This is like women, yes, you can work. Yes, you can have the same positions. Yes, you can fight for the same salary. But also, you're still responsible for your children. You're still responsible for your aging parents, right? Women are taking on more than what they're able to do as one person, right? So when we're looking at, we're looking at many different types of social issues under the lens of the quarantine right now. And so now when we can't cope with it, what do we do? We turn to addiction, right? So actually, when we're looking at, now, am I just accepting this and letting it get by? Or am I choosing it? Someone who has an entirely different standard wouldn't let that happen. Therefore, it is a choice. Very good point. I, I really appreciate that. Um, so do you, would you suggest that women take a look at how they're coping in the quarantine? Do a little bit of a self-assessment. Is that helpful? Yes. This is a great time to reflect. If something is really not going well, it was already not going well. And so if women are having trouble with their spouses, that relationship was already in trouble. It's just that we can just keep busy and not talk about it. We can maybe just plug onto our phones at the end of the night instead of talking anything, something through. We can get away with lack of support until everything hits at once. Right. And so in this time of pandemic, uh, how, and for those who are facing problems that we've described, how would you suggest, uh, would you suggest they seek help and seek treatment? Absolutely. And, and uh, yes. how this could they, the and what could you offer them? I would say do reach out to your friends. Oftentimes when women are in abusive relationships, they have disconnected themselves from other relationships because they're spending so much time trying to make this marriage partnership work and they have so much going on and trying to keep everything afloat. They've neglected their social life. I bet you anything when they reach out and reconnect with some of their old connections and even friends and families they've lost touch with, 
that is huge. And when women have a good social ecosystem, it's less likely their spouse is able to abuse them because she's backed up by other relationships and she feels more confident in her relationship. That's right. And when other people know, when you when you expose the abuser or the controller, because oftentimes yeah. people, you know, it's not just women, women, but, um, you know, women who are in relationships where men are controlling them and you, you expose that controller and other people find out about it, they, they might actually lessen... Um, lessen their load, if you will. Yeah. Um, you do a lot of executive coaching um, yeah. for women to help them to advance their career. How can they get in touch with you? They can email me. Uh, my email is julia at juliachat.com. And I also want to mention you have a book. Am I there? It's called Am I There Yet? The Messy yeah. Business of Being Yourself when you have no idea who that is. And that was yeah. recently published. Congratulations for being number one on Amazon Thank Canada you. under the self-esteem category. Julia, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. He is a clinical professor at the University of British Columbia, a medical doctor who is dealing every day on the front lines of COVID-19. He is the one and only, and he's been a regular voice on this program, and he joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Good evening, Maureen. How are you doing? Fine. Thank you. Happy long weekend to you. Thank you. To you, too. Thank you. You're staying home, not going to your summer cottage. (laughs) Uh, no, no, I don't have a summer cottage, so it's a little easier not to go to it. Um, no shame. No, I'm not judging you. <laughs> and either way, whether you have one or not, or whether you've gone to it or not. <laughs> anyway, but I do, I do actually secretly judge people. I have to admit. <laughs> In fact, people who haven't washed their hands when I thought they should have, I would secretly judge them. <laughs> or if they haven't practiced infection control practices as well, which is so important in this time of COVID-19. So we have lots going on on the COVID-19 scene. We're uh, loosening up, finally. (laughs) Kidding. Um, (laughs) Loosening restrictions. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. And some people are nervous. I don't know if you heard that before. But we're loosening restrictions when even more questions and wonder and uh, bizarre symptoms are coming out about this COVID-19, such as the inflammatory syndrome that we're seeing in children and adolescents with COVID-19. Can you talk to me a little bit about that, please? Sure, Marina. You're absolutely right. No week goes by where we don't learn something more about this um, crazy illness. Um, so in, in The Lancet, which is a very um, very reputable journal, published last week was um, research from the Bergamo province in Italy, where they had a lot of cases. And what they found was that they had 30 times the number of expected cases of an immune kind of condition called Kawasaki-like disease. So Kawasaki isn't very common. usually happens with the kids under the age of five. We're not totally sure what causes it, Maureen. We think that it's a reaction to an infection of some type. But typically, um, kids under five get it. They get a high fever. They get rashes, they get swollen hands and feet, their eyes go kind of bloodshot, and they get swollen lips. Um, the good news is that once it's treated, and there's an immunoglobulin that you can use for that, children do well. If you don't treat it, there's significant heart complications particularly. Now, what they found in Italy was that when they, when they looked at these Kawasaki-like illnesses, they found that they had 30 times the number of cases that they would have expected. Then when they dug down a bit more, they found out that these children had COVID, um, the COVID infection. And what's really surprising is that when they had the COVID infection, they either had it mild or they had almost no symptoms at all. And then what we think happened is that
that sometime later after they got through the COVID infection is when their body's immune system caused this inflammatory syndrome. So we're calling it a pediatric multi-system inflammatory syndrome, or PMIS. Now, the challenge is that um, we perhaps weren't looking for this before, and it can have significant consequences if it's not picked up on. So what we're telling parents to do now is that if you have um, a child of any age, not just under five, but from basically birth up until teen years, and there's a fever that's there, um, they're having any chest pain, rapid heart rate, bloodshot eyes, and particularly stomach problems. That seems to be a hallmark of this new condition, uh, the PMIS condition, or any rash or skin changes. Don't ignore them. Do actually get them checked out, and it could be something that was a consequence of the COVID. We're not sure how the COVID infection fits in with it, Maureen, right now, but we're finding at least an association between the COVID-19 and this new condition. Is it the cytokine response? Is it the immune system going into overdrive? That's exactly it. We're thinking that it, it is a bit of an inflammatory um, over-inflammation or overdrive of the inflammatory system. And remember us talking about this before, that is in essence what's also happening with the COVID infection in adults. It's not the infection itself. It's the body overreacting that affects all the different organs. Yes, it's just, it's so strange. Um, and as you say, we're learning all the time. Uh, now, something that I was concerned about... Um, <laughs> If I give a talk and I give a lot of presentations, uh, you know, they'll say, do you need a mic? And I'll often say no. They, I'm sure they can hear me at the back of the room. <laughs> I have a recognizable voice and it's loud. Your voice projects. Your voice projects. <laughs> yes, it does. And so loud talking could leave coronavirus in the air for upwards of 14 minutes, which is longer than uh, some of the other or some of those soft, quiet, shy people. Yes, and you remember there was that um, the study or, or the incident finding around those people that were in the choir. Remember out in, um, I think it was in part of the U.S. there. Yeah, Washington um, but, State, uh, yes. Washington, yeah. Kirkland. And so, um, yeah, Kirkland. So a, a lot of, I mean, if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. You're putting more energy into those vocal cords. You're projecting more air and maybe more respiratory particles. So, um, you know, that would be a problem. But, Maureen, I already suggested to you that maybe if you could mime your talks or sign language <laughs> them, that would be better. But um, I appreciate that people want to hear your voice. So. I'll try. I'll try. I'll try. That's for sure. Um, something else that I thought was intriguing and you as a healthcare uh, worker as well, um, in terms of washing your hands, uh, you know, many of us wear lots of bling, <laughs> not me. Um, should you wear your jewelry during COVID-19? And, and that really relates to, you know, hand washing and infection control. Yes, and there's two sort of aspects to that. That's a great question. There's two aspects to that. One is it's really hard to get um, your hands clean if there's jewelry on them. It's hard to get underneath the, the jewelry and so forth. So it, it's hard to, hard to get them clean to begin with. And, and the second is, you know, what, what, what are you transmitting that's hanging on to the jewelry itself? So one is the cleaning and then what, the other part would be, um, you know, what, what, um, what, is the, what is staying on the jewelry and could be passed on. Um, my suggestion, and it's sort of like what we do in operating rooms, right? When we scrub in um, to, uh, to do surgical procedures, we take all our jewelry off and um, for, for, for that. So if at all possible, it would be good to remove the hand jewelry um, just because I think you're going to have cleaner hands afterwards. Yes, and maybe um, popping them into the safe deposit box uh, because, you know, there's a risk of losing your engagement ring or, or wedding band or um, 
college ring, as we Americans yeah. have. The other, thing, <laughs> the, other, um, the other thing that we're finding a lot of family physicians, nurse practitioners, and dermatologists are saying is that um, some people are actually scrubbing their hands so vigorously that they're bringing on sort of dermatitis and skin conditions. So the idea is to clean your hands, but don't, don't be scrubbing so hard that you're causing irritation or removing layers of skin, right? Absolutely. And I thought I have taken to a couple of things. Um, one is moisturizing afterward and something I happen to love is body butter by, um, there's a company that, um, has, I can't think of the name of them anyway. And, uh, we all need body butter. And the other thing is, um, there's a moist, there's a, a sandy wipe that you can, that has a moisturizer in it. But I have Catherine from Richmond, British Columbia on the line. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Or hi. <laughs> You're Catherine. <laughs> I'm Maureen. <laughs> okay. I talked to another Catherine earlier today. No problem. <laughs> um, on the topic of microphone that you just mentioned, if I'm required to speak into a telephone microphone where other people might have used or or record my voice, in a microphone, um, using a microphone, what should I do? Is there a certain distance that's safe, or should I just not do that? Or That's a great question. Uh, uh, do you want to take it, or do I have a little experience with that since well, I well, speak well, no, no, you, you go ahead, Maureen. <laughs> I, yeah. Well, here at the station, we wipe down the microphone, and then we have a microphone sock that we put over it, and it's a, a, it's a specific sock. So I can I imagine that with a microphone into the phone, and I, I guess other people are using the same phone. Is that it, Catherine? They might have been. I don't know. Yeah, so I'd wipe it down with sandy wipes, and then I would put some thin type of sock over it, and, and that's at least protective. You can always put a mask on on as well on yourself, and um, that, that I think should, should do the trick. But certainly... You know, stay away from it as far as you possibly can. But on the line, we have Benny from Chilliwack. Hi, Benny. Hello there. I got a couple of questions for the doctor. First question is all about masks. I'm getting mixed messages from the media and from various health practitioners whether or not to wear a mask. Now, in question, why I'm questioning it is, my 89-year-old friend went to see her doctor. Her doctor was seeing sick patients. Her doctor never wore a mask, and that concerned her very much because she's ugly. Another situation is I'm 75. I went to emergency um, to get a loose tooth pulled. 99% of the nurses in the emergency room were wearing masks, and about 90% of the doctors were wearing a mask. The doctor that came to me and looked right into my mouth and pulled my loose tooth out was not wearing a mask. So what is the doctor's opinion on masks? I know masks won't um, uh, prevent you from getting it, but if you... If you're sick, supposedly you won't give it to somebody. But I'd like to know your the opinion on, on masks from the doctor. Thanks, Benny. Dr. Parhar? It's a, a great great uh, discussion to be having. So uh, the first thing to remember is um, physical distancing, the two meters, six feet that we've been seeing over and over again, that's your choice by far. So you want to be physically distancing, trying to stay two meters away from people. But we recognize that that's not always possible. It's not always possible in transit. It's not always possible in waiting rooms. and certainly isn't possible when you're seeing your doctor or seeing your nurse practitioner. You have to get in closer. And it's especially 
especially for those types of situations where we would want actually both parties, both sides to be wearing a mask because the physical distancing just isn't possible. So when you raised the example of your friend visiting their physician and the physician wasn't wearing a mask, I would say, and, and Marina, I'd love to hear your insight into this, I think it's, it's going to become social etiquette. You know, mm-hmm. when we keep talking about the new normal, I think anybody who's in a public setting where they can't physically distance, the rest of us are going to say, and why aren't you wearing a mask, right? And it, remember, it's not so much that um, we're, by wearing a mask, we are going to um, be safe, but we're saying to our community members, I'm, I'm, I'm just, just to be on the safe side, I'm protecting you from me just in case I'm asymptomatically, I'm asymptomatic, but I'm possibly going to pass it on to you. So um, certainly the, the person who um, did that dental procedure for you, I would have, my preference would have been that they wore a mask. And I think that uh, patients need to speak up, have the confidence to speak up. Sometimes patients can be intimidated by physicians and every now and again a nurse here and there. Um, but, uh, you know, so I think it would have been appropriate, Dr. Parhar, to say, you know, I'm curious why you don't have a mask on and I'd feel more comfortable if you had one on. Do you, what do you think of that? I, I, th- I think it's absolutely appropriate. And, and also remember that earlier on in January or so, we had very few cases, we weren't actually suggesting people wear masks. These are non-medical masks in, in, in public or in community areas. But I think our thinking around that's evolved as, as it should. And now we're recommending that people wear masks. I remember, Marina, just quickly during SARS, not, not COVID, I remember wandering into the emerge, uh, emergency room at Royal Columbia and one of my colleagues that I trained with was there and I put my hand out just to shake hands. And he, he jumped back. You'd think I was, you know, coming to him with some sort of weapon. Um, and he said, Gurdip, really? And he said, really? And I said, you're right. I'm sorry. And and ever since then, you know, I really thought hard about shaking hands with anyone in that sort of environment. And certainly now we're, we're, we're not um, recommending it. Dr. Fucci in the States, in the U.S. is saying that he may never shake hands again. Well, uh, it, the great point. And you're self-actualized and you can actually apologize and recognize when you've made a mistake. Um, I was reviewing some of the stats on Japan and Japan has done very little in terms of, um, you know, the the suggestions that other places are doing. Um, but one thing they have done, and they haven't had the deaths and they haven't had the cases, and one thing they are doing is wearing masks, and they were comfortable wearing masks before then. You know, it's something I don't love, I have to be honest, wearing masks in public. I'm, I'm so used to wearing masks as a nurse, but uh, wearing them in public, I really don't like um, like that, but I think it's necessary in this day and age. Benny, thank you so much for your question and your call. And uh, I'm assuming you're going to be wanting to be entered into the contest for your 89-year-old friend. (laughs) Anyway, she'd like you to, I'm sure. Uh, Dr. Parhart, just we don't have much time left at all, but uh, vaccine, is there something on the horizon in Canada? Yes, so at Dalhousie University, the Canadian Centre for Vaccination Research there have um, started some trials on vaccines, so it's very exciting, very early stages yet, and all, we're all watching with bated breath to see how that how that sort of unfolds, but um, we have launched um, some studies, and, and they're on the East Coast right now, and we'll see how it goes. Um, I think everyone's you know, thinking that that really will be the way out for us. Excellent. One other text, uh, which is a great text. What good? What is good social distancing if the vapor from a loud talker, <clears throat> I think they're talking about me, is in the air for 15 minutes? 
that uh, means that you need even more than the two meters then, right? That means that if somebody is literally hollering at you or, as you said, singing, then abundance of caution. Um, go beyond the two meters and be three or four meters away from them. Exactly, and try to lose that physical space, go around or, or whatever. Uh, Dr. Parhar, I can't thank you enough for joining me on the program, especially on this long weekend, uh, giving up the dream of your summer cottage. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Maureen. All right, we'll talk next week. Hopefully you'll join me again. He's an educator, a global Celt, author of Ways to Wellbeing. He's a possibilitarian. I love that. And a TEDx speaker, also a board member at Make-A-Wish Foundation. He is John Doran, and he joins me on the line very early in the morning from Ireland. Good good morning, John. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to join you, Maureen. It's my pleasure, John, of course. And we've been trying to connect for a little bit, so I'm so glad we finally did, because what you have to say is critically important. Thank you kindly. Well, you've done a wonderful TEDx talk around positive education for the 21st century. Why is positive education important and how does the power of positivity affect our lives? Uh, before I begin, Maureen, may I say we were having a joke last week. Uh, I was complimenting you on your own TED talk. I mean, I was <laughs> thanking myself that I got the 10,000, but your TED talk has seen 22 million listeners. So comparison is the thief of joy, but Maureen, it was fantastic. Um, positive education, I think we never needed it more, Maureen. It, it's a belief in ourselves. It's, it's, it's an appreciation of our strengths and, and, and what we're good at rather than a concentration on what we're bad at. And I think it's been re- it's really important for our young people to believe in themselves. And I say that belief in yourself costs nothing and everyone can afford it. I think that's so true. And, you know, oftentimes people will, I, I hear people, because I deal with people who are in relationships and they have uh, issues and the conflict in the relationships. And oftentimes they just want to shut people off. And, and I'll say, you know, listen, people are, you know, the sum of a hunt, you know, that adds up to a hundred percent. And so maybe they're 90% or maybe they're 95. Maybe they've done this one thing over 10 years of your relationship. Uh, we're so willing to get so upset about something somebody does wrong once. Yeah, I think where your attention goes, your energy flows. Uh, I mean, I think it's really important to place your attention, particularly in the pandemic that we're facing into, Maureen. You know, where we put our attention, I mean, I think everything is a teachable moment potentially, but it's, it's really important to, I think, you know, you know, the secret of happiness is paying more attention to what makes you happy and less attention to what doesn't. So I think it's really important to take back the power of your attention. I mean, the greatest weapon against stress that I know is your ability to play, you know, to choose one thought over another. I think we need to reclaim our power in these times that we face into. And, and that's that positive thought, as you say, to sort of choose what you're thinking. And it is often a choice. People who are stressed, who are angry, who are negative, you know, it's very difficult to be around negative people. I, I heard it recently about, oh, somebody yeah, was, was saying that um, a friend um, was, you know, was somebody else was having difficulty and we because that person was so negative about everything. And th- that is actually a choice, isn't it? Oh, well, I completely agree. I think the best defense against negative people is distance. You know, I think we have a choice again, Maureen. Are you the kind of person when you enter a room, the room lights up? Or when you leave the room, the room lights up? So are you a radiator or a drain? And I choose consciously to surround myself with people who are positive, who give me energy, 
rather than take away from my energy. And again, that's a choice. And to be aware of that, I think, is really important. That is so great. And so, so many people, their stress is related to the worry. They're not good enough. They're not making enough money. I mean, right now, there are certainly uh, so many pressures on people in terms of finances and family and, and fear around contracting COVID-19. How can people you know, turn on those positive thoughts and, and how will they benefit from that? Well, you said something very important there, Maureen, that I want to share with your listeners, you know, that you are enough. That we, 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 a lot of us are trapped in a trance of unworthiness. We, we don't actually, we don't, and that's kind of the feeling that we're not enough is the invisible toxic gas that, gas that we're breathing. So I think it starts off with saying, you know, I'm a good enough person. I'm a good enough parent. I'm a good enough partner. Uh, and that's really important. I, I had a conversation last week with a guy called Howard Behar, who's a former president of Starbucks, and he, he was talking about my TED Talk, and he shared with me something that for 50 years, I repeat the same affirmation. I am enough, I have enough, I do enough. And I think that's something that I've started myself, Maureen, that, you know, to, to, to actually be kind to yourself and to, is, 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 really, is really, really important thing, that we are enough. And I think uh, when we really internalize that. We're, we're free to liberate ourselves from fear to be the best version of ourselves, to show up as the best version of ourselves. So I would say we, we are enough. I, I think that's great advice. And, you know, so many people measured their value by how much money they made or by, you know, the contacts that they had or, um, you know, by the position that they held. And, uh, and I think that, you know, we're, we're seeing the world in a very different way. Um, you know, the heroes are really the people on the front lines, the people who have been delivering our food and the, and the grocers and, and the bus drivers and the, the truck delivery people, you know, the truck drivers um, who are getting our food to us, the people in the supply chain and these meat and processing plants who are risking their lives every day. And of course the healthcare workers as well. Um, So I think people don't necessarily, you know what? And, and I'm, I'm enough. I'm good enough. You know, that's not the highest standard actually. (laughs) If you know what I mean, like that's not that hard to get, that ought not be that hard to get to. And you know what, you said something, a lot of people in Ireland are saying, when will we go back to normal? But you know what, Maureen, normal wasn't working for us. And I think they say never waste a good crisis. And I think this crisis here in Ireland, certainly, and I suspect in Canada as well, has given us a power of a pause. That ability to take a conscious break to gather ourselves. And I think we're in, at the moment, a collective gathering to say, well, you know, where are we going in our lives? And I think I'm taking this pause to reconnect to reconnect to myself, to reconnect to family, to reconnect to values, to reconnect to what's important in life and to disconnect maybe from what's not important. And, you know, this continual comparison with other people, Maureen, doesn't serve us particularly well. And you're right, when we lower the bar of what we're grateful for, suddenly we increase, certainly, our happiness quotient. And I think, you know, we've seen so many people step up to the plate. You've mentioned them, Maureen, the first responders, people, the postman, the, the, the cleaners, the janitors, the nurses, the health practitioners. And I think this has given us a great chance to kind of uh, readjust and recalibrate. And I think there's a gift in this moment that can teach us and that can help us become better on the other side of this pandemic. I, I completely agree with you. I think we need to have much less of a disparity of wealth. Uh, I think we need to look after our own health. It's been shown that healthcare is so important. I think we need to look at 
prevention. Um, we need to look, you know, I, I would have hoped there was a stimulus or stimulus package given in the U.S. and then also some government aid here in Canada. And I would have liked them to have sent, uh, you know, a little medical education, uh, you know, how to stay well. Here's a hundred dollars that you can buy a blood pressure machine and, and here's a diet and nutrition plan that will keep you healthy. I mean, I think there's so much that we can learn from this pandemic. As you say, never waste a good crisis. I love that. Um, you know, I'm going to look at my next crisis in a very different way. I had one today, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it's so traumatic. Like, my wife, unfortunately, has stage 4 cancer. And I've been quite much thoughtful of health at the moment. And there's a saying in Ireland that health is the crown that well people wear that only the sick can see. And I think, you know, when you have your health, both physical and mental, Maureen, by golly, you're amongst the 1% of the richest people in the entire world. So your health is so important, not just physical and mental. So what are you feeding your body? But also, Maureen, what are you feeding your mind? And I think it's incumbent upon us to mind our space, that six inches of precious real estate between our ears. And, you know, I, I, I find myself only tuning into the news maybe once or twice a day because if it's important, that news will find you. But it's very important that you mind your mind and, and what you're actually feeding yourself in these days that we face into. Absolutely. You're singing my song. What was that expression that you said? Do you mind repeating that again in your Irish brogue a little slower? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Sorry, Maureen. I love the, the Irish brogue. That, sorry, go ahead. Health is the crown that well people wear that only the sick can see. Exactly. That's so true. I, I always say your health is your wealth, and I've, I've certainly said that on this program um, before. Um, I'm so sorry to hear about your wife, and I wish her recovery. I hope she's faring well in this pandemic in these times. I, I often think for those who are ill in this time or went into it, I have a friend who's going through cancer treatments herself and, um, you know, it's just that much more of a worry, that much more concern. But she's lucky to have you. Well, you mentioned worry there, Maureen. And, you know, I think worry is a little bit, a little bit like being in a rocking chair. You're, 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 you're going nowhere fast with it. I think worry is a waste of energy. I think I, 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 I make a distinction between worry and concern. I think worry is negative, but concern is good. To be concerned is positive because it's, it, it, it's proactive. But there's very little to be, to be had from worrying. I think it's quite, it can be quite negative. So I, I, I promote concern, and I kind of think that worry is probably to, to, re, to recalibrate that and to change that energy into something more productive and more positive. I couldn't agree with you more. It's just such a waste of time. But people think they're actually doing something that is productive when they're not. I deal with a lot of that in my clinical practice as well. John Doran, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad we finally got uh, to uh, connected. It's been both a pleasure and an honor. And may I wish your, your, your listeners and yourself good health, safety, and kindness all the way from Ireland. And we're feeling it very much because you always feel it that much more from an Irishman. <laughs> Thank you so much, John, and, and uh, my Thank best you to so your wife morning. as well. You're welcome. We'll get you back on because I think people need to be reminded of that. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, 
Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.